students sense of like you guys are just going to keep talking and this research is doing what like what is the point of this what are you actually doing other than you're just talking to other academics you know i'm just trying to get us to think together about the, the way that the pressure of time is transforming what we think of as both expertise, um, but also the research community itself. When talking about climate change, what do an oceanographer and a literary scholar have in common? How might these distant disciplines begin to speak to each other? Timescales, thinking across ecological temporalities, is a volume that includes frictive chit-chats from scholars from far-flung disciplines and explores what they have to teach each other about the timescales of environmental change. Bethany Wigan is one of three co-editors of this volume, along with Carolyn Fornoff and Patricia Kim. Wigan is director of the first established academic program in environmental humanities at a major research university, the Penn Program in Environmental Humanities. She's joined here today by oceanographer Frankie Pavia, law student Jason Bell, and geophysicist Jane Mahovsky. This conversation was recorded in November 2020. Uh, so this is Bethany talking, Bethany Wigan. I'm one of three co-editors of the volume Timescales, and I am also the director of the program in environmental humanities, which uh, hosted a conference in 2016 which was the birthplace of this volume. The volume has grown uh, substantially since that conference, um, but it, it, it does have its roots there. Um, the program is also an exploration of what it would mean to be inspired by a place as a object, but also sort of a co-collaborator in research. And the place that the Penn Program in Environmental Humanities takes as its inspiration uh, is the Schuylkill River, uh, and particularly its most uh, industrial parts, parts which have not been restored. The Tidal River has for centuries been the home to a refinery, which blew up in 2019. And uh, we've been thinking a lot with this river, about this river, about what it would mean to make non-extractive research, about research that starts in a university, but also addresses and includes communities beyond our campus. I began my academic career as a comparative literary scholar, a Germanist. Uh, I also do some French, English, and American literatures. Some time ago, I began working on a book on settler colonialism in the mid-Atlantic, uh, in the Atlantic world more broadly, and it was really that sense of the enduring legacies of settler colonialism that really brought me to think about timescales and the ways that the current crises that we are imbricated in feel at once both fast and slow, that they've been long in the making, but their impacts make your head spin with how fast everything is happening and multiplying. Um, it's a real pleasure to be joined um, for this podcast by three of the authors in the timescales volume. Each of them actually are, are duos, part of duos. Frankie and Jason are both here with me and they'll talk more about their work. Um, and Jane Mahofsky is here as one half of the writing duo that was part of the chapter that Jane and Dave Evans contributed. So I'm sending it over to Frankie and Jason to introduce themselves next. 
All right, I'm I'm Frankie. I'm an isotope geochemist and an oceanographer. I uh, measure radioactive materials in the natural earth to try and figure out how fast things happen in sort of earth processes. And Jason and I started working together on our chapter, which is about ostensibly uh, bomb radiocarbon and surf punk music, because we were college roommates and we were friends and we were interested in trying to work on something together while we were both PhD students, me in earth science and him in English literature. And so we started talking and iterating and talking and iterating more. And eventually we had come into um, into contact with some people from the Penn program in environmental humanities. And we heard about the timescales conference that they were putting on. And we put together a presentation for the conference. And then afterwards we put together our chapter for the volume. And I think it's been pretty exciting. Uh, I'm Jason Bell. Um, I'm a third year law student now. So almost a lawyer is how I would describe myself vocationally. Um, I got my PhD in English in 2018. I think that Frankie and I started working on this chapter at least as early as 2016, maybe it really represents one of the many projects that we did together. It kind of grew out of a podcast that we had been trying to create that was a total failure uh, <laughs> and then never went anywhere. Um, but we did end up with uh, this chapter that includes some fragments from podcast episodes that we recorded. Hi, I'm Jane Mahofsky. I'm trained as a geophysicist. And I currently teach at Penn in the Earth and Environmental Science Department. Um, I also do research with undergraduates, primarily utilizing remote sensing and using the uh, satellites and aircraft sensors and the images that they produce in order to understand mostly how Earth's surface and its vegetation changes, primarily due to anthropogenic forcing. Um, but my research really uh, is led by my undergraduates' interests, so it changes every year. <laughs> I wrote our chapter, as you mentioned, with Dave Evans, who is faculty at Yale. Dave and I have been friends for years. We were graduate students together at Caltech. Um, he was a few years older, so an excellent mentor to me in my early years there. So when I heard about the Timescales conference and Bethany, I think it was, who mentioned we were looking for other scientists to come and speak. I immediately thought of Dave. Uh, I love to, to work with him, and uh, he's a really excellent communicator, I think, of science and also an excellent listener. So it was fun to work with him on this chapter. You know, we're both earth scientists, so unlike, I think, some of the other chapters where there were humanists working with scientists, we were both sci earth scientists. And so we did, I guess, try to bring that perspective, you know, to understanding time. What we did is, I guess, aim to, you know, lay out some basic principles of geologic time and talk a little bit about how this gives insight into how humans have impacted the earth on the very small time scale of individual human lives and then our time as homo sapiens on earth. One of the things I really want to talk about are the kind of serendipitous conversations that happened that are at the heart of this book um, in so many ways. 
Jason and Frankie asked me about how much chit chats informed the editing process that my co-editors, Carolyn and Patricia and I used. Like, can the chit chat actually be thought of as the method behind this book? And I, I think it is. It's really Frankie and Jason's word, though, chit chat and the types of pessimistic chit chats that you staged so beautifully in your chapter that really made us adopt the term chit chat. We might have called them conversations before, like Jane and Dave had lots of conversations and they were probably sometimes chit chats and sometimes conversations. Anyway, I want to talk about the chit chat and ask um, Jason and Frankie to to lead us through when you were introducing yourself, um, Jason, about your podcast that was also a place of conversation and maybe chit chats, and you talked about it as a total failure. Um, and I'm kind of thinking about the ways that chit chats can be total failures, but also successes, um, and the ways that outcomes are entirely uncertain, and how that's kind of the point of a chit chat, right? That it's not outcome driven. Um, and I wondered if you might just introduce us to the way you're thinking about the chit chat in your chapter and its uses maybe more more broadly. This is Jason talking. I think that we chose the term chit chat because it seemed very casual and informal. The argument of our chapter in part is that interdisciplinarity too often is outcome oriented and intended to solve a particular problem oftentimes in a particularly synthetic way. Um, and we wanted to think about other models of interdisciplinarity that might be structured around failure or um, experimentation without a product predetermined before beginning. And so chit chats, you know, the word is, uh, it's out of currency in a way. Like I can't remember the last time anyone, uh, ever said to me, let's have a chit chat. Um, I'm not sure anyone's ever said that to me in my entire life. So we might <laughs> at least maybe, uh, maybe like when you're being called into the principal's office and the principal says to you, let's have a chit chat about your behavior. that would be a, a context in which you might be asked to chit chat. But the word that you used was serendipity or uh, serendipitous. And I think chit chats do have that kind of quality of intersection or uh, passing ephemerality. And uh, I think that's what we are trying to capture, the possibility that two people from different parts of a university or parts of the professional world might uh, cross paths and have a conversation that didn't really have any point except um, sociality or sociability, whichever word you you want to use. Yeah, I was kind of recalling, I was trying to think, this is Frankie, I was trying to think about the ways in which that podcast that we'd tried to make was a total failure. And I think the main way that it was a total failure is that it was just really bad. Like, <laughs> it was, it was uninteresting. It was rambling. We didn't prepare for it at all. We the sound quality was terrible. Like, it was just really like, we didn't think it out very well. The only part that we thought about was like using Ocean Man by Ween as the intro song because that was the obvious choice. We obviously didn't really plan on it like working in any way. We kind of just wanted to do it. And I find it amusing that we actually ended up finding, we ended up sort of mining it for use 
in this chapter that we wrote, right? Because it was something that was it, was, it was for the purpose of something totally other than what we had originally done it for, but that's sort of like in the vein of this pessimistic or serendipitous like um, quality that we were looking for um, in our method, right? That sort of these, these chit chats could be used in a way that was not necessarily what they were originally designed for, but they might eventually hold some prospect for something down the line or for something different or for something other than what you would expect that they might hold value for. This is Bethany again. Um, Jane, I, I want to ask a specific question to you to, to follow up if you don't mind. Um, and it's that what I just heard Frankie talking about in terms of the way that a chit chat like years down the line can yield something or create a connection of thought that you're like, oh, that I didn't even think of that at that time. But now like, oh, like this is actually really useful. That's been my own experience in collaborating with an atmospheric chemist who I've done some work with around this place of the Schuylkill River and the refinery, um, Pete DiCarlo, that conversations that we've had while kayaking on the river or whatever later actually lead to fairly substantial investigations that I wouldn't have undertaken had we not had that conversation, but I didn't, you know, they, they bear fruit later. Um, I'm wondering in the conversations that you have with Dave, your disciplinary training is more similar than mine and a chemist or Frankie and Jason's, right? And I'm wondering, like, does the conversation happen in the same way? Um, and also, like, I know you talk with humanists a lot. You talk with me a lot, like, and others. Um, and I'm just sort of wondering, like, what's the texture of that conversation? How is it different to have a, like a, like a conversation with, with Dave and, and, and interdisciplinarily? Does it function differently? Does it feel differently? Does it function in different time, like a, a different temporal horizon? Yeah, those are such great questions. And it is something I just, kept coming back to as I read the chapter um, by Frankie and Jason, these conversations and how mine was different with Dave, um, and at the same time, somewhat similar. So while we went to graduate school together, we did very similar research in the beginning. Our career trajectories have taken us to different places, and um, in those, we won't mention how many years, many years, you know, we've both had different types of conversations. And I have had probably more uh, conversations with humanists, you know, social scientists across the board, uh, just different disciplines. I teach students who are in the humanities, have done research with students who are in the humanities. I was more of having the, the playing the role maybe of the humanist, which is not at all my training. And I'll come back to this idea of time. I want to maybe come back to this idea of the added time that we might have to put into our efforts in order to really do these, whether it's optimistic or pessimistic interdisciplinary work in order to understand our own disciplines and understand, not understand the other discipline, but to understand how to have those conversations. You know, it wasn't on our minds that we were chit-chatting, of course, <laughs> when we were talking about the chapter, but in a large part, that is what happened. And uh, it was going back, you know, sort of having a touchstone of our shared discipline of earth science, 
Um, it was sort of like, go to that and then go to how does this connect with the humanities? And of course, Dave added to that conversation as well, but you know, it wasn't so different than I think some of the other, other conversations. Um, but then the other thing that the, their chapter made me think a lot about was, you know, going from college where I was very focused on becoming a scientist and, you know, got my bachelor's of science, not a bachelor's of arts in the science. So very specific, you know, learning the scientific method, really learning, you know, the physics of geophysics, et cetera. And obviously continuing that um, in graduate school, but at the same time since then, I would say it's been this expansion of understanding how other disciplines can add to things that I'm both researching and trying to teach. And so it's like a collection of all those conversations that comes to each conversation we have. So in in terms of this chapter, I would say so many of those conversations, and for me, as a you know, my career, my career primarily focuses on teaching. It's the conversations I've had with students. I, I mean, the conversations I've had with students who, in our department, are um, are often in an ENVS major, which is interdisciplinary. So they're coming already with a um, you know having taken classes and having a strong interest in other disciplines, uh, in addition to environmental or earth science. I've learned so much from them and um, and their what they're interested in and knowledgeable about has shaped, you know, even the research that I do. So went from, you know, really using a tool to look very much at Earth surface in a way that you might think of a geophysicist doing that to starting to use the same tool, but to look at things like vegetation change and things like that. So um, yeah, I'm beginning to ramble, uh, sounding more and more like a chit chat, but <laughs> I just, I, yeah, the, the chapter and the idea of a chit chat really spoke to me. I, I absolutely loved it. I'm going to have students read that chapter. This is Frankie. I actually had a follow-up question about the nature of your, of your chit chats with, with Dave. You mentioned that you guys went to graduate school together. Is that right? Yes. So I, I was thinking about whether or not you think that sort of the casual chit chats you might have had as graduate students about things that were totally separate from science, right? I sort of think on my own experience as a grad student, where every conversation with other grad students was mixed in with conversations about science, conversations about, you know, our terrible advisors. I'm just kidding. My advisor was great, but right, right, the sort of like things that you go through as a graduate student are these like more personal things. And like, much more sort of non-disciplinary casual conversation. And I think that like I was thinking on me and Jason's experience of, I don't know, like most of what we talk about is not environmental humanities. We're talking about like the Eric Andre show or whatever food we're eating or like all this sort of stuff that you talk about as college roommates that you don't necessarily talk about as collaborators, but that I think played a huge role in sort of like loosening barriers of what we felt comfortable talking about in a in an interdisciplinary work sort of setting too, where neither of us were afraid at all to sound like idiots to each other or like to admit that we had no idea what the other one was talking about or to say something that we might have otherwise thought was kind of nuts to say to each other. And we had that sort of comfort that had been gleaned from years of just sort of talking about nothing with each other. Um, 
And I'm wondering if you felt that same thing with, with Dave, that the long time scale sort of chit chats from long ago might have might have played a role in your comfort talking together about this chapter. Yes, I think absolutely. I think that, you know, the best chit chats are when we feel comfortable with someone. And, you know, like I said, I'd known Dave for a long time. We spent a lot of time both in the lab and in the field. <laughs> and yeah, you don't talk about science all the time. Absolutely. And then we, you know, the you get to know each other's families, you have kids to talk about that, that opens up a lot of space throughout a lot of time to really become comfortable and know somebody and right and be willing to say dumb things or say, I don't understand that, or I think you're way off there. Um, yes, absolutely. You know, oh, this is Bethany talking. Um, the way that you guys have really got me thinking about the conversation that we've been having, like in uh, in the Google Doc, uh, where we were preparing for for this conversation together, which is you know another form of chit chat, pretty casual. Jason, you you asked a question that I've really been thinking about quite a bit, which was you wrote so nicely about the coda that I co-authored with Carolyn and Patricia, in which we really said goodbye to this project and and in a very real way also said goodbye to working together. Carolyn and Patricia, when we began this project, were graduate students and fellows in the program in environmental humanities. And um, our Carolyn is an assistant professor at the University of Illinois and Patricia is at New York University and fabulous careers. And it, it's so, you know, a, a moment of closure, a coda, a, a bit of a bit of sadness there, but also celebratory. And you asked this fantastic question about how much should we value the time skills of the personal during the Anthropocene? And it got me really thinking about the ways that the community of researchers that environmental humanists are increasingly talking about. I'm thinking of the work of Joni Adamson and Stephen Hartman and others are really trying to think the environmental humanities as a community of purpose. And that purpose also includes care and that emotion, the emotional valences that I felt like, Jane, you were just pointing to about well, I felt really comfortable being able to, like, I know you so well, Dave, like, we can just talk about these things together. And, it, and, and ideas can be generated because of a different kind of affective relationship than one normally has in a research community, if that makes sense. Um, and so I guess what I'm thinking about is the way that, that the chit chat or the informality and sometimes the bonds of affection that a chit chat builds um, are, can be baked into a kind of larger research, research ethos. That was a really long preamble to a question I really wanted to ask about part of the chapter that you wrote. This is uh, Jason and Frankie again, but it also goes to you, Jane, because I was so moved by you saying like so much of your research is driven by student demand and student needs. And I want to I want to think about that together with you guys because student-driven research is not usually how top-down research, I mean, that's that, they're not the experts, right? So why should they be driving research agendas? Um, I'm super curious about this fantastic sentence that is in the chapter that Jason and Frankie that you guys wrote. You talk about the urgency of responding in a meaningful way to the crisis presented by climate change, despite the incredible uncertainty about what that 
change will entail or is entailing. Um, so what even are you supposed to do to respond? Um, and then you have this, in my mind, like incredibly dryly ironic sentence that says, and yet the principal response to climate change in the academy is a call for new alliances and collaborations between scientists and humanists to produce social transformation and technological solutions. Um, and I just let, like, I don't know if you intended this to be sort of sarcastic, but it really made me laugh because um, it totally gets at the truth of my experience in the environmental humanities. <laughs> and also at Penn, it's a very much a student-driven program. Um, and students' sense of like, you guys are just going to keep talking and this research is doing what? Like, what is the point of this? What are you actually doing other than you're just talking to other academics? You know, I'm just trying to get us to think together about the, the way that the pressure of time is transforming what we t think of as both expertise, um, but also the research community itself. Um, and wondered if you, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very curious about your turn to the law, Jason, and if that is also part of looking for more effective or responsive um, means to address the climate crisis. I, you know, I have a <laughs> a rote response to why are you in law school? While you were talking, Bethany, I was thinking about how when we wrote this chapter and the period in which the book was being produced, I think one of the some of the trendy keywords at the time in the humanities were precarity. And there were conferences that had that as the the theme, um, solidarity. And I feel out of touch now with what is bubbling up. And I don't know whether people are still thinking that precarity is is important or that solidarity is important. But when we were writing this chapter, those were terms that uh, meant a lot. Um, and so I chose to go to law school at a moment when it was becoming apparent that the job market in the humanities wasn't going to recover um, in a substantial way from what happened after the Great Recession. And uh, it was also a period when I was feeling like I wanted to speak to different audiences that I didn't have access to as a literary scholar. Um, so I started out as somebody who worked in the 18th century, and I remember talking to faculty when I was picking graduate schools um, and someone told me that, you know, if you work on 18th century American literature, the historians will never think that you're sufficiently historical and the literary scholars will never think that you're sufficiently literary. Um, and I think that that's also true about a lot of the work that happens in uh, law and the humanities and maybe in environmental humanities as well, that you're never sufficiently legal if you're somebody who wants to write about the law in a humanities department. I don't. I couldn't say how the people in in law departments feel about producing scholarship that speaks to literary criticism, but I imagine it might run both ways. So I wanted to speak to um, a broader audience, and I wanted to do work that was more actively outside of the classroom. And so I went to law school not really knowing anything about what the law was, although I had an an erroneous idea, as I think a lot of people who go to law school do. Um, and uh, have been fortunate enough to get to work on a lot of environmental law issues, um, which turn out to, you know, at least in my very limited experience, 
to uh, have little connection with um, a lot of the literary criticism that has evolved around environmental problems, um, which I think is unsurprising just because environmental law is such an administrative law field and so technical and technocratic. And most literary criticism or humanities research um, wouldn't be very interesting to read or exciting if it just talked about how the uh, National Park Service had failed to adequately consider the impacts on local aquifers from hard rock mining in this particular stage of the environmental review process. And so the agency had to go back and redo it. Um, that kind of stuff, you know, doesn't grip the pages of uh, PMLA. <laughs> um, but uh, that's a, a roundabout way of saying that I don't know whether there is, uh, you know, any real connection. Um, but I'm okay with that. <laughs> it seems to me that what you're also getting at, it's the environment as an object of study between literary departments and legal disciplines, it's two different things. And it's like a different thing again for uh, geophysicists. Uh, and it brings us back to the question of like, have all these interdisciplinary conversations where the object of what we're even talking about is not certain and we agree that it's um, unstable uh, in some ways a discursive formation in other ways obviously real bedrock etc and uh and at the same time our students are like you guys you got to do something and you're just still talking like what the heck and i i'm i i i I'm so sympathetic to that. And I, I suppose my question about the law was actually born of my own envy of lawyers that they have more concrete and actionable uh, tools for, let's put it naively, going after the bad guys. Um, whereas in the academy, it seems very unclear about what actually would constitute progressive research or what would research that was restorative actually look like. Um, and I wondered, Jane, if you had, I mean, you think with your students all the time about what research to be doing. Like, how are you guys tackling this? Yeah, there's so many different ways to approach responding. But, I, you know, of course, I'm not completely free of uh, academic priorities and, you know, all of the confines of that. But I sort of have the privilege of flexibility being a senior lecturer focused on teaching rather than standing faculty focused on research while being able to do research. And let me sort of explain what I mean by that. Um, you know, when we, when in the, the chapter that Jason and Frankie wrote, there was a line about, you know, the, inter, the pessimistic interdisciplinary work having less emphasis on research outcome. And I would say that I can do that with my student. It's not that we have no emphasis on their research having an outcome. But to me, um, in my job, the focus is really on their learning outcomes. So if their research doesn't lead to what some might say is a conclusion or a, a research outcome, we have still succeeded because they have learned something. And so while I don't know that that solves the problem of 
you know, we, I hear this from this, probably many of the same students and some different that, what are we going to do? So that doesn't solve the problem of what are we going to do? But I guess it solves the, you know, when, when I try to enable a student to do a research project that is of their interest, um, and it at least pertains to something they very much care about, they're gaining some tools that they may be able to go out into the world and, you know, affect change. You know, I mentioned that my tools are very often using satellite and aircraft imagery, so remote sensing to, you know, analyze those images, um, and it's a lot of, you know, essentially boils down to writing a computer program. <laughs> um, but, you know, I had a student who was very, this was years ago, and, and she was interested in invasive species. So I am not a biologist. Um, however, I saw many opportunities for her to learn the tools of remote sensing while also being able to ask a question that related to invasive species and also in Philadelphia, which allowed us to have our field site right here in our backyard. And so while her, you know, while her thesis did not provide us with a research outcome that I could then say, go to a funding agency and get money to do more research just like it, it did provide an outcome in that she was able to learn something, both, you know, a tool and also learn more about invasive species. And to me, that learning outcome was enough. And so if you sort of apply that to a lot of, you know, maybe chit chats, you would say, well, maybe that is also an outcome because each chit chatter learns something. So is it really no outcome? I don't know. Yeah, you've got me really thinking about one of the things that in working to make work that's not outcome driven, legible to tenure and promotions committees is something that I've been like working hard to do. Um, and I'm wondering, like Jason and Frankie, if this is something you guys might want to um, jump in on too. Um, but what I've, I've been really thinking about is as we've been institutionalizing environmental humanities at Penn in the years since this volume um, began, we have really thought a lot about, well, how would you teach transdisciplinarily or how would you teach in, in co-teach uh, seminars that would train students to think from two different disciplinary perspectives and think, of, think in a third place or generate those types of questions or have those kinds of chit chats that we do really believe that are slow and have uncertain outcomes, um, but are nonetheless really useful although uncertain um, and hard to measure and hard for tenure and promotions committees to get their heads around. Um, but what we really were thinking of, and, and this was also in response to student demand, was to say, okay, we need to train our students to increase the types of conversations that they're having. And the way that I have really worked to do that is to say, we have to teach our students how to become publicly engaged and what it means to work with broader publics beyond those in their lab or those in their seminar. Um, and they're incredibly hard, you know, the success of a public engagement or publicly engaged research is really hard to measure. I think it's really easy to see bad examples, um, but it's harder to codify what creates success. Um, and I'm wondering, like, Frankie and Jason, you're both relatively 
not just out of grad school, you're several years out of grad school, but, you know, early on in your careers. And I wonder, you know, do you at an early stage see a place or a need for public engaged research in your disparate fields? Is that something that is meaningful as a response to the pressure, the t the urgency with which the the fact that let's say 12% of the planet is now two degree on average two degrees Celsius warmer than it was in pre-industrial. I mean that's a 12% is a lot, right? <laughs> like 1.5 is a long time ago. Um, so I'm just sort of curious about public engaged research, the ways that it changes the types of questions we ask, as well as the things that we create. Like maybe we aren't going to write another co-edited volume about chit chats. Maybe we're going to make a film or a series of public curriculum uh, for grade schoolers. I don't know. I'm, I, is that something, um, Frankie, uh, public science or community science that is coming up for you? It's something that I do think about. I will say, so where I am right now at Caltech is not especially interested in it um, in many ways, which I find a little bit frustrating. But I struggle with it a little bit because there's obviously a lot of public engagement around climate science, and some of it is really good, and some of it is pretty bad. And I haven't quite figured out what I think my own place is in that ecosystem. And the way that I've sort of tried to push on it a little bit just in, in a personal sense has been trying to amp up my willingness, I would say, to talk about science and climate change and even like the nitty gritty of what I actually do or measure with like my friends and my family where like it's not so much that they're a captive audience, but they kind of are, right? You know, they get to and have to listen to you ramble on about, you know, what the problem is with climate or why you think that this geoengineering solution might be more feasible than the other geoengineering solution. I, I see it as a little bit of like a grass, grassroots-ish type thing where hopefully you can have an interesting enough conversation with your friends that they can talk to their friends, you can talk to their friends, and right? It's a game of telephone, but I think that public engagement could proceed in a sort of more natural way if scientists were, as you say, and, and humanists too, but if scientists were able to have more wide-reaching conversations or their conversations were with a much more diverse set of people and voices and groups than they usually are, which are sort of usually other scientists, which usually means the same sort of socioeconomic or demographic type of groups as opposed to sort of reaching out in more organic ways. So like talk about science with your friends, but also make more diverse friends would be, I guess, my ideal way of summing up what I hope public engagement in science could start to, could start to look like um, in a sort of what's the value of chit chat type of framework. I love what you just said. Maybe make more diverse friends. That's uh, uh, I think great advice. It also, okay. So I have this pet peeve that I want to float um, to you guys and just hear what you think about this. Okay. So I love Greta Thunberg and I think her work has been really important in putting a young face of anger um, to the climate movement or giving it that face. It's 
problematic on other levels that maybe we should go into or maybe we won't. She's white. She's from Sweden. Um, there's a kind of question that, you know, many have asked about why has her voice been amplified when there are many other activists, youth activists, brown and black activists who have been saying similarly uh, effective messages. But my pet peeve is actually different in this case. <laughs> so my pet peeve is that there seems to be, and Greta says this uh, fairly often, as listen to the scientists, just listen to the science. And of course we should listen to the scientists, but it seems to me like, actually, I'm not really sure that we need only to listen to the scientists. In fact, like the science doesn't actually tell us what to do. It's not at all clear. <laughs> like, listen to the science. Okay, right. Like, terrible things are happening. Like, predictions, models, like, whichever model you take, like, the future looks pretty dreadful. Um, but that, 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 okay, now what? Like, that's the conversation starter, perhaps. Um, but I'm kind of curious about when, when you hear, listen to the science, like, what kind of reaction do you have? Yeah, I think it's really problematic, too. That doesn't get us anywhere, exactly what you said. I think that, of course, you have to listen to the science. And part of the scientific process is we gather more information uh, and then we know better. And part of that gathering more information um, can't just be concentrations of carbon dioxide or temperatures of the ocean or the pH of the ocean. It also has to be information about humans um, and that, you know, and, and some of that is, of course, also within the realm of science, but some of it really isn't uh, because this, the, the problems we're facing involve uh, an earth that we can understand and quantify in many ways, but it's also, uh, and most fundamentally, our interaction with earth. And so I think that those, those have to be conversations, not not a one-way listening. Um, and I loved some to hearing some of your thoughts about the community science. This is something I've been thinking more and more about. Um, and I'm actually trying to write um, a little proposal to take a teaching leave to develop more of my student work that I've done with my students into a community science project. All ears about how to do that. But yeah, I mean, in, in a nutshell, I, I also find that incredibly problematic, even though that statement, listen to the scientists, is also very important. And I think, you know, she's saying that for a reason, but that's not the end. Yeah, it doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? First, you should listen to what the scientists say about what climate change is, and then you should probably listen to someone else. <laughs> also, like, listen to the scientists. There's sort of like a a non-trivial history of scientists uh, having problematic moral um, views on things that I think, right, if you sort of applied in bulk, listen to the scientists all the time, you wouldn't end up in a very happy place. When it comes to climate change, yeah, scientists, I think, have it, have it right that the earth is warming and we need to reduce CO2 emissions in order to stop, you know, pretty catastrophic global change. But as a blanket statement, listen to the scientists should probably listen to a lot of other people too. 
Yeah, I, I, if I could just jump in and, and reiterate that, coming back to the idea of, you know, listen to talk to your friends or listen to your friends, but also make more diverse friends. I would say, listen to the scientists, but let's also have more diverse scientists. I mean, one of the many problems of only listening to scientists is that the, the many fields of science remain incredibly male and incredibly white. And so even if we were just listening to the scientists, we have to understand that we're in large part listening to uh, a white male perspective, which in and of itself is problematic. Yeah, geosciences are the, the least diverse of any STEM field, right? How is that? Yeah, I agree. I um, want to suggest that we turn toward another of the really many fascinating comments and meta comments that we made in our Google Doc as in preparation. One of the things that humanists are really good at doing, I think, is storytelling, story making, or we're good at least at analyzing them. And it seemed to me that one of the most important things that we could do with this volume timescales was actually not to make a story, but actually to break a story. Um, and it was really breaking the story of time as progress that we were after in introducing and insisting on the importance of multiple timescales and thinking both at the human time and planetary time, thinking also about different rhythms. Musical metaphors run throughout the volume, not just codas, but also etudes, but they're not uh, studies or they're not codas that are written in the formal uh, language of European classical music. They are improvised, <laughs> they're devised, they're the materials we had at hand. Um, and they were our best attempts collectively as a group of, I think there are 30 contributors to the volume, um, of breaking the story of time is progress or maybe the way that progress has colonized much of the human imagination in the last several hundred years, let's just say, maybe since the enlightenment, maybe since global capitalism, it's really hard to know. But the reason I wanted to, to bring this up is that in our Google Doc, there was this great exchange about time feels it's 2020 like what the hell else is 2020 going to throw at us right and it's coming at us faster and faster and faster and yet at the same time where we're headed is increasingly uncertain even today is uncertain we're also speaking of course amidst global pandemic amidst a second wave both of case numbers also closures and it's really hard to know even what tomorrow is going to bring so in this accelerated state of crisis, we also wanted to think about what, what does it mean to go slow and can slowness actually in some ways be a restorative or reparative tactic? And I wanted to ask you guys, you know, both like, you know, obviously in that slowness, thinking of the slow food movement, which was so important for philosopher Isabel Stengers and her formulation of slow science or another science is possible, thinking about literary critic Rob Nixon's phrase, slow violence, thinking about these catastrophic things that have long histories, long origins, and multiple origins. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering more broadly about 
is slowness a response that makes sense to you in your own work? I would say yes. Um, and the when you're we're talking, what it made me think about was a conversation that Dave and I had as we wrote our chapter. And we sort of saw the progression of our chapter go through, in some ways, Earth time, describing, as I said, those basic principles of the geologic timescale and how they inform what we know about how Earth has changed in the past. And then you get to this point where many people who have written about this will say, okay, is the next step, you know, on an extreme level to go, okay, we've ruined this Earth, do we go colonize Mars? And when we think of it as like time as a progression that's always positive, we can fall into that trap. Okay, well, you know, Homo sapiens started in Africa. We, you know, we went out and throughout the Earth's surface, and now the next step is obviously into outer space. Um, I would strongly say pause <laughs> and pause. And, and, you know, and in our chapter, right about maybe. Well, not maybe. I think it is definitely worth taking that time to understand how we can adapt, how we can mitigate before we, we go to extremes and that progress isn't always, you know, the progression of time and moving forward isn't always better. One of the great examples of the nonlinear progress or the movement of time forward doesn't always equate with other things moving forward is um, maybe two essays by the science fiction writer Samuel Delaney called Time Square Red, Time Square Blue. One of the, the, the essays are generally concerned with his relationship as a queer man to the space of Times Square and its different erotic possibilities. Um, but in those essays, he also advances a theory of urban sociology that's very skeptical of urban development and gentrification. He traces the evolution or devolution of Times Square from the 1980s into the, into the late 90s. It looks at how the sterilization of the space really killed off a large number of vibrant, important communities. Um, to connect that to what Bethany had been saying earlier, the conversation that you all were having about listen to the scientists, I think maybe more broadly listening to the experts um, or to a siloed group of experts sometimes does damage in the name of one particular majoritarian perspective that ultimately ends up hurting everyone. And I think coming from a science fiction writer like Samuel Delaney, that very nuanced, specific sociological insight is even more powerful. Which is to say that, you know, like when I practice law in, like I don't practice law yet because that would be illegal, um, but when someday I do practice law, I will have Samuel Delaney with me, even though I won't be citing Times Square Red, Times Square Blue in court filings. And maybe that's a different way of thinking about slowness. Um, to return again to something we were talking about earlier, this idea that something that happened earlier in your life, a chit-chat er earlier in time, can insert itself later in unexpected ways. That the kind of flattening out or um, movement of different parts of your life in unexpected combinations can feel slow in, in an interesting way. Although other people might experience that as fast. I don't know. Maybe the fast-slow metaphor doesn't really work. 
Yeah, Jason, I was just thinking about how my entire experience as a as an earth scientist has been how like relative the perception of time is, I guess. I learned at some point because I said it that deep time was a dirty word or a dirty set of words and it varies depending on who is using the phrase, right? So to me, deep time meant any time in earth history before the Cenozoic because nobody that I knew cared about anything before the Cenozoic. And that's 65 million, the last 65 million years or so. And then someone came who was working on something 100 million years ago, and someone said that what they were working on was deep time, and they were deeply offended because most of the people who worked on things at their institution worked on like the Archean or things that were billions of years old instead of 100 million years old, right? So, or like, one of the isotopes, one of the elements that I work with has isotopes that have half-lives of 24 days, one has a half-life of two years, and one has a half-life of 75,000 years, right? And so long-lived to the person who measures the 24-day half-life isotope is any of the other two. Long-lived to the person who measures the isotope with a two-year half-life is only the long-lived, or is only the 75,000-year half-life isotope. And long-lived to me, who measures the 75,000-year half-life isotope, is what I do. So, like, um, I guess in that same vein, like, the practice of slow research, I have a hard time conceptualizing because what it might mean to me might mean something totally different to, I don't know, let's say a, a tenured faculty member who has the luxury of conducting things very slowly in a way that maybe a postdoc does not, right? So that, that notion of slowness in practice, I think, is hard, to, is hard for me to really wrap my head around. Frankie, I have a follow-up sort of question or uh, comment about what you just said with uh, deep time. And I don't know how much teaching you've been able to do, but I always find it really interesting when I talk about or introduce uh, the Earth time scale and deep time to a student who maybe hasn't taken time to really consider the 4.6 billion year history of our Earth and compared to the time that we as humans have spent on Earth. And I, what I find interesting about it is what a different reaction it has on students. So I'll tell you personally that I was a physics major until I sat in a classroom and I took a geology class for a general education requirement. And my professor took a roll of toilet paper and went around the room getting us to understand Earth time with this roll of toilet paper, you know, condensing all of Earth time in this roll of toilet paper. And I was just mesmerized by this. And and I would say it gave me like this sense of excitement and hope. And I don't know why I say hope, but that's what's coming to mind. And I do a very similar uh, demonstration for my students on the first day of my oceanography class, which is my large lecture sort of introductory class for for both scientists and non-scientists. And sometimes uh, I'll see that in other students. You know, of course, some students are totally bored by it, but other students are really disturbed by it and it makes them feel totally insignificant and sad. Um, and I'm wondering if either in teaching or just in conversations you've had with non-scientists or, or it doesn't matter if it's you know a new scientist or whatever, if you've seen that sort of polarity of, of uh, reactions. Yeah, I think that I've seen that polarity of reactions more when it comes to space 
rather than time, I would say, when I've tried to conceptualize like, oh yeah, I'm studying how the entire ocean works by measuring the smallest components of matter, right? And I'm trying to think about it from a time perspective. The example I'm thinking of is this sort of classic curve, I guess, that was a model that describes the geologic fate of fossil fuel CO2 and and how long it takes for the earth to sort of naturally buffer that change away. And in response to an extremely sharp input of CO2 on human timescales or even on much longer than human timescales, something like a thousand years, longer than any one human would live, right? The the time it takes for the earth to sort of come back to its previous state, which is slightly perturbed from its previous state, but something close to it, is on the order of a hundred thousand years. And even I, I think, have a hard time wrapping my head around the idea of a thousand years of fossil fuel CO2 emissions. First of all, a thousand years is even far beyond what I think we can conceptualize, although we can sort of imagine it on like a civilization or a historical perspective. But a hundred thousand years is far beyond that. And that's just the sort of start of what the sort of end of the human impact actually looks like. And then you extrapolate that further to say, oh, well, in the sort of four and a half billion year timescale of the earth, it's it's still almost completely insignificant. And I'm not sure whether that gives me hope, like you say, or if it gives me fear, or if it gives me both. But I do think that this this issue of the sort of inability to conceptualize that time is really, I think, fascinating and hard to wrap your head around in, in so many ways. Um, I'd love to jump in here with uh, Octavia Butler, and not only because we just heard about Samuel Delaney, but I've been thinking about this, you know, when um, humans, whether it's students or, or whoever, is faced with the kind of relative insignificance of humans uh, in space and time, um, I think it's, it can be, you know, either instill a great sense of humility or despair. Um, for for some, I think it's very, you know, tragic, actually. Um, and they experience it as tragic um, that historical forces are impinging on their sense of subjectivity and agency. And that actually, I think, brings me back to this question that I was having, uh, thinking through about what are the forms of research that are commensurate with this increasing realization that humans are no longer masters of our own destiny. If we ever were, that illusion of progress, et cetera, has been really shattered, I think. Um, and it's hard to know how to represent that. Time is notoriously difficult to represent, right? Other than in, if you're Einstein. And, um, but I think Octavia Butler actually does that really well. And let me just take a second to, to talk about that. I'm thinking specifically about her novel, Kindred, in which the heroine of the story, Dana, is uh, with no control of her own, thrown back 150 years to different times. And she doesn't know when, she doesn't know when she's going to be able to leave that time that she's thrown back into. She's thrown back into conditions of terrible violence. Uh, she in her past that she's thrown back into, she was a uh, enslaved person. Um, and it, it, the reading the book is an experience of an utter loss of agency and control over time that I started thinking about 
wow, the way that time is being experienced and represented in this book is is actually really similar to the ways that humans are coming to terms with the way that past choices we have made to burn CO2 at such huge rates is making us no longer the writers of our own stories. And um, I started thinking about like, well, how could that, how could experimental forms like Butler's be introduced into a scholarly idiom? Like, could that even happen? So I, I'm writing a book now in which like there's this sort of time, tra- it's a scholarly book, but there are kind of time travels. It's a, it's a, a sort of literary environmental history, very much indebted to speculative fiction. That's one response that I've been having to like, where's the, how do we work in multiple times and multiple time scales and, and elevate other stories and break certain stories? I never really thought of this before until we were talking together now, but it's a kind of chit chat that I am introducing. Like it's a chit chat with past forms that could be useful to us now, the, the past forms of, of experimental novels that actually may unexpectedly, like a failed podcast, like really help <laughs> in in finding appropriate responses um, that at least allow us to try to represent with some degree of accuracy these notoriously difficult, to- like the how to represent multiple times at the same time. Like, how do you do that? It's really hard. I, I was just going to say, and, and different people may find different ways, you know, making sense to them or helping them to consider timescales, or it may help them best to to look at how you know, to read a book like you're describing and and then also have a conversation with someone else who found insight into time skills by some other mode. When you were talking ab- about that, it made me think of an activity I do with my students when we're learning about plate tectonics and the scale. I'm trying to get them to understand the speed at which plates move because, you know, especially if you're talking to someone in Southern California, and they learn about the San Andreas Fault and the North America and Pacific Plate uh, interact within California, and they immediately think like, "Well, when is Southern California going to be moved up north, right next to you know San Francisco?" and and then you go into these like conversations about understanding the the time that that happens. And but anyway, I often ask my students, I'll give them ways to think about the rate of change in plate tectonics you know, fingernails growing or different things like that. Um, but then the, the question that they're asked to provide and talk about with their group is some other way to think about it. Um, and then they have to, you know, they can't just go to uh, a, a picture that I've drawn for them or some other way I provide. They have to think of a new way. And, and it's also often one of those things like, well, what if you need to go and describe the rate of plate motions to your roommate? How would you describe it? Um, and it's always interesting to think, to read the ways that people came up with that I would never, they may not even make sense to me <laughs> sometimes, but it, it's their way of sort of describing this scale, this rate, or this, you know, this in some ways a time scale. Well, I just really want to thank you guys for joining me and joining together in this really productive chit chat. I, you've left me with a lot to think about which is a real gift. Thank you. Thanks so much for including me. Yeah, thanks for letting letting me and Jason be part of it too.
This was great. It was nice to talk after such a long time. Yeah, for sure. Who knows what this conversation failed or not failed will yield years to come. For more information, visit z.umn.edu forward slash timescales.